So the topic uh, of my talk is on intergenerational justice and climate change. Um, and what I want to do is explore uh, the questions of intergenerational justice as they pertain to this particular topic. And I want to argue there are four, well actually there are three key questions. I'm really going to focus on the first one, um, but I mention the others for completeness' sake. So uh, people often talk about avoiding dangerous climate change. Um, there is indeed a, an influential uh, and important edited book uh, with that title. And my first question is really what uh, counts as dangerous climate change? Um, when the United Nations Framework Convention, Article 2, talks about dangerous anthropogenic interference, it's using a value judgment. It's assuming that um, change beneath that is uh, safe and acceptable, and change above that is um, unacceptable. So what would be dangerous um, climate change? So the uh, policy community as a whole generally talk about a two degrees centigrade increase of um, global average temperatures from pre-industrial times. Anything beneath that counts as acceptable, and above that, that's dangerous climate change. Um, however, if you ask James Hansen, the uh, distinguished NASA scientist, he thinks you know 1.5 or 1.7 degrees is uh, dangerous. Um, and if you ask Bill Nordhaus, uh, the the temperature level for dangerous is much higher. Right? It can um, go to 3.4 degrees. Um, if not higher in later generations. And you, you similarly find disagreement when you ask, what are the appropriate targets? So uh, when climate scientists talk about stabilization levels of, of um, greenhouse gases, some of them um, say 450 parts per million is the appropriate target. I think we're on about 430. But, um, James Hansen says it's 350, and uh, uh, William Nordhaus is quite happy to go higher than that. Now, of course, underlying these disagreements about what counts as dangerous and what counts as the target, you're going to get scientific disputes about um, climate sensitivity. And you're going to get social scientific disputes about uh, the different socioeconomic impacts of a certain temperature increase. So people may agree that, um, what's likely to occur uh, in terms of temperatures, but they'll disagree about the impacts. But they're going to still also um, probably disagree about what criteria we should use to assess the impacts. Um, and these are ethical questions. And they're also going to disagree about how much we owe future people. Because if you think we owe future people less, um, then the more you're happy to have higher temperature targets, the more you're happy to have higher stabilization levels. Um, the more you think we have extensive obligations to future generations, the more inclined you will be to have lower targets, um, lower concentration levels. So we just can't duck the ethical issue there. We need to know what is the appropriate um, principle of justice that binds us to future people. How much do we owe them? So we can't just assume two, two degrees is the appropriate one. Suppose we have a greenhouse gas budget there, and we think maybe it's 1.5 or 2 degrees. Um, we'll then have an allocation of greenhouse gases that are within our budget, so to speak. We can emit within that, but no higher than that. OK, well, then the obvious next question is, what's the principle of intergenerational justice that governs that budget? So can we use them all now, uh, or how much should we leave um, for future people? Um, 
Like last week's speaker, um, Henry Hsu, I'm, I'm going to rely on some work by Miles Allen and Dave Frame um, on the trillionth ton. And so for those of you unfamiliar with this, what they argue is that if humanity wants to have a 50% chance of meeting a two-degree target, then it can emit a trillion tons of carbon between 1750 and uh, 2500. Um, as of this afternoon, we'd emitted 544, 870 million. So we're over halfway there. It will be higher by now, right? Because if you go to that website, you'll see it ticking on fast. They say that, um, so we have half a trillion uh, left. That if we carry on as business as usual, on uh, Monday, the 20th of June, 2040, um, that's when the trillionth ton will be emitted. That's if you want a 50-50 chance of missing, of attaining that target. If you want a three-quarters chance, um, then um, I think their target is uh, 750,000 million. So uh, we're a lot closer. And we would get there on the 18th of May, uh, 2028. Of course, they would say, look, these are, are rough, and um, so those States shouldn't be taken that seriously. Um, they would also add that they factored out all other greenhouse gas emissions. So if you add in uh, methane and nitrous oxide and all the other ones, um, that would mean the budget would be even lower. So we have a budget. Um, if we use the, the, the Miles Allen Day frame analysis, we have to think, how do we share this out between now and 2500? Um, so that is a second issue of intergenerational justice. third question is, suppose we start to <clears throat> mitigate aggressively. We may pursue policies that themselves have intergenerational implications. So we may think, well, let's have um, nuclear, which of course involves high-level waste. So you may think we have a duty not to leave high-level waste, which lasts for hundreds, thousands of years, for future generations. So it seems then the target we choose uh, is a function of intergenerational justice. How we distribute the remaining greenhouse gas budget is an issue of um, intergenerational justice. And when applying means, we should bear in mind any intergenerational implications they have. So this is my way of saying you can't avoid intergenerational justice for climate change. But also, it's not just about the target. Uh, and my fourth question is, I think all of these questions are nested just in a bigger, more general one, which is what do we owe those who come after us? Um, you know, many people think we should leave the world uh, in as good a condition as we inherited it. Um, no worse than that. Can leave it better, but no worse than. Um, others might think we should just leave it above a certain threshold of um, a decent quality of life, which may be lower than ours, but still okay. Well, others want, might think we ought to maximize human happiness and well-being, and our obligation to those who come after us is you know, just to maximize happiness. So these three questions that I'm highlighting, the target one, the greenhouse gas budget one, and the other policy instruments ones, are all part of a bigger one. And you may have trade-offs between them. You may think it's wrong to leave high-level waste to future generations. But on the other hand, it's even worse not to do something about dangerous climate change. So I'm going to focus primarily on question one. Um, that's big enough. And I'm going to say something a bit about question two at the end. And I'm going to start with some background. Um, simplifications or assumptions. One is I'm factoring out entirely um, past emissions. You might very reasonably think that um, 
any future policy to do with reducing emissions and uh, so forth should bear in mind how much has been emitted already. And I'm not denying that's morally relevant. Uh, I'm just trying to make it a bit simpler by setting that to one side. And the other preliminary assumption I'm going to make is that um, I think one thing that's wrong with climate change uh, is the way it completely jeopardises fundamental human rights. Human rights to life, because storm surges and freak weather events and heat waves um, kill people. That it violates the human right to um, water and food and subsistence because of crop failure, um, drought, extreme precipitation. And I'm going to assume it, it um, violates the human right to health, that people are entitled not to be exposed to serious threats to their health through infectious diseases or um, heat stress or diarrhoea or respiratory problems. And if you want the empirical data, I'm happy to send you papers where I've used uh, things from the IPCC and others to try and tie these to the particular rights. But I'm just going to assume that, right? So climate change is bad, at least in part, because it compromises fundamental human rights. So now let me sort of turn to thinking about what we would owe future people. Um, the conventional um, economic analysis uh, is what I want to introduce next, partly because it just dominates entire discussions. So all discussions of intergenerational equity are framed using a formula that came from the brilliant mathematician, economist and philosopher Frank Ramsey. And this is what the Stern Review uses. So if you look at point two on the handout, um, I want to frame the remaining discussion on two variables that come up in the Ramsey formula. And they use this term, uh, the social discount rate. So there may be many economists here, so... Um, you will be familiar with this, at least if I get it right. Um, so the social discount rate tells you how much you should devote resources to future people as opposed to current people. If you have a positive social discount rate, um, that means you can devote more to current than to future. Um, and there are two variables that economists tend to put in, and I'm simplifying somewhat. One is pure time preference. So in our ordinary everyday lives, uh, so the argument goes, we often allocate less value to some unit of pleasure that's further off in time. So um, we tend to be myopic in that sense. And uh, one issue is whether we should be. Um, you know, should we uh, attach more importance to a pleasant sensation now as opposed to a pleasant sensation in 10 years' time? If you think you should, then you have a, a positive pure time discount rate. Of course, we're thinking about society, so um, we'd have to export that idea to the societal level. So sometimes people discriminate against the future just because it is the future, and we do that, um, so many people argue. I'm not so sure we do do this, but I, I'm just following the line. Um, we do that in our personal behaviour. But it's another reason for allocating resources to the now rather than to the future, um, which is that you might think people in the future are going to be wealthier, so this is where the second variable, ETA, comes in, where if you think there's going to be economic growth, and if you think um, that the, to put it in one version, that the, the more wealth there is, the less marginal utility you get from each unit of wealth, then that's another reason for allocating money to the now rather than to the future. So um, if you think pure time preference is zero, you're going to discriminate less. Um, 
if you think there's going to be a lot of economic growth um, and you think that there's high diminishing marginal utility, um, then you might also discriminate uh, against future generations. So what I want to do is look at these two variables in turn, and I want to argue that the pure time discount rate uh, should be zero, that people like Stern are absolutely right, and their critics are just um, wrong on this score. And then I want to look at the second variable, which um, I'm going to call like following William Nordhaus growth discounting. So can we delay mitigation on the basis that future generations are going to be wealthier and they should pay? You know, it's crucial to keep those two apart. Um, one reason I'm slightly sceptical about the empirical data about whether people do actually discount is that people generally don't. So if you say to people, um, would you like something now or would you like it in the future, other thoughts will enter their mind like uh, uncertainty, that I'm not sure it'll turn up in the future. Um, I might be dead in the future, so uh, it better have it now, and so on. So um, pure time's preference um, in the strict sense should factor that out. OK, so let's look at pure time preference. And I put on the handout a few estimates uh, that people give, um, or a few accounts. So Stern, as I said, um, uses zero. Actually, to be completely precise, he uses naught, um, um, point 0.1. And that naught point 0.1 is to reflect um, the fact that, uh, that humanity might uh, become extinct. Right? So it's, it's not to do with time in itself. It's to do with the possibility of extinction. So I'm treating him as a zero uh, kind of discounter. But he's, he's far from alone. So William Klein, who's written on climate change for decades, Partha Dasgupta, uh, Frank Ramsey, and Roy Harrod, who didn't write on climate change but did write on discounting, they all think it's obvious that it should be zero, or at least not obvious but true. But here, look, I mean, compare William Nordhaus. Um, he thinks we should um, have a 3% per annum discount rate in '95 which decreases. So if you do that, you'd have a formula which is 1 over 1.03 to the power n, and you know, where n is the number of years. After about 5, 10, 20 years, things start to lose significance um, very, very quickly. Um, I put in Martin Weitzman, and I should stress this article is not one about climate change. It's one about discounting in general. But he. Uh, he doesn't think it should be zero either. Here's what he calls a sliding scale discount rate. So for the first period, you discount by 4% um, percent per annum, then 3 then 2 then 1 then 0 So the point is there are lots of discount rates you could choose. But now, let's look at the case for the positive um, pure time discount rate. Um, so very many economists argue as follows. Um, and I'm thinking of people who reply to Stern. They say, look, uh, we could be descriptive about this or prescriptive. We could use actual data on the way that people do behave. Or we could import our own sort of philosopher king standard, um, which is the preferred value of the analyst. But then they say, and I'm thinking of Martin Weitzman and William Nordhaus, it's completely inappropriate for Stern to act as a philosopher king and tell us that we should discount by 0%. We should leave it to the people. Right? and look at how they discount in their real-life practices. And it, then you look at savings and investment rates, and then you work back from the market what people's actual um, discount rate really is. And if you don't like that approach, you could always use opinion polls. And um, quite a lot of people have done sort of uh, opinion poll data on whether people actually think we should discount or not. 
Um, now, being a political philosopher, I find this slightly mystifying. Um, and, and one problem is, is that um, they say we shouldn't act as philosopher kings, we shouldn't import our ethical assumptions in there. But it's just inescapable. Um, so they object to Stern putting a 0% discount rate in. And they say, we think the government ought to use what the market rates deliver. And that very sentence gives the game away, right? They are affirming an ethical judgment that we ought to do what those currently alive um, think. Um, so it's just a kind of uh, an impossibility, a chimera to think that you could avoid making ethical assumptions here. Um, they just defer it to another stage. And incidentally, if you talk about consumer sovereignty, then um, you might bear in mind the consumer sovereignty of people who are going to be affected by this, but they screen it out. So they just focus on what the people who currently exist uh, prefer. So it's just you know, uh, a non sequitur, I think. But the other thing is you might say, look, I grant you, sometimes it's appropriate to discount. If it was a purely self-regarding policy where it's just me and a group of people affected, sure, we, we are entitled um, to discount away because it, you know, it's our lives. But clearly it wouldn't follow that we can do that when um, affecting others. So um, I linger on this because it's so prevalent in economic reactions to the Stern Review that we mustn't depart from observed behaviour. Um, and as I say, from an ethicist point of view, uh, this is a non-starter. Much better argument is the second one. So um, it's very common for people to say, if you had a zero pure time discount rate, if you just put everyone's well-being on a par, it'd be impossibly demanding. Because consider a policy that would impose a burden on the contemporary generation of X, but it would yield huge benefits to all subsequent generations. Um, then the benefit to them you know, just gives you an overwhelming reason to uh, impose this sacrifice on us now. And we'd sort of have a, the tyranny of the future, right? that um, the benefits to them uh, would dictate we ought to do that. But that's incredibly demanding. But we can avoid this right, by discriminating against them and according their preferences less and less weight. Um, and that way, we can come up with a policy that won't penalise them. Uh, sorry, won't penalise us. Um, so Ken Arrow, uh, you know, very distinguished social uh, choice expert and economist and Nobel laureate, um, also Bjorn Lomborg, uh, uh, Richard Posner, it's just right across the board you get this objection made. Um, William Nordhaus makes it uh, repeatedly. So I want to linger a bit and explain why I think this objection has um, zero uh, force. Uh, it's not that it has some that's outweighed, I just think it's a, it misses the point. Um, so one, one is a methodological point. Uh, you can't infer anything about policy from the pure time discount rate because you need to know the other parts of the Ramsey formula. And in particular, you need to know the facts. So if we had a zero pure time discount rate and future generations are fantastically wealthy, um, it's not obvious that we would then have to sacrifice to make them better off because it might be um, that the money is better spent on us. So just methodologically, uh, you can't go from any pure time discount variable to policy implications. Um, second point follows on from this, which is absolutely crucial to understand the implicit distributive principle at work in the demandingness objection. Because the implicit assumption is we should maximize. And that's why we should bear a burden for us now um, 
which would benefit all future generations. And the way to avoid that is to accord their views less and less um, weight. But moral and political philosophers, very many of them, uh, are not maximizers. Right? We, we tend often to have different distributive principles. So let's take a, a sufficiency one that says people should not fall beneath a, a, a certain level. Then there isn't the logic then to say, oh, we must pile on sacrifice upon sacrifice for us to make sure that future generations are even better off, because that's not our obligation. Our obligation is just to make sure they don't fall beneath a certain level. So the point I'm making here is whether a zero pure time discount rate is demanding or not, it's a function of the distributive principle as well. And I put this on the handout by, um, so it's part three, objection two. Um, I said there's two questions you can ask for any account of justice. One is, are we all being treated on a par? Or are we saying that some well-being or interests have a lesser status? Um, you know, uh, a racist would say uh, some people's well-being is on a lesser status, or a sexist would say uh, a woman's interests should be on a lesser status. They're asking about the moral status there, and that's where the discounting is coming in. It's saying we should accord less moral standing. I, I know this is kind of guilt by association. I didn't mean it to sound quite that. If you believe in positive pure time dis discounting, you're like a racist or a sexist. Um, well, I guess I think you do think that. Uh, <laughs> but it was a cheap shot, right? I didn't mean it to, to win by um, cheap shot. But, but um, that's the space in which it operates, is should you treat everyone on a par or not? <coughs> and then there's the question, OK, everyone, suppose we think everyone in this room has equal moral status. Should we distribute the wealth equally, maximise the condition of the least advantaged, uh, maximise wealth? You know, those are question two. Those are separate ones. And what I'm saying is uh, there should be a positive pure time so there should be a zero pure time discount rate. That's my answer to question one. And then question two is a separate matter. And if we were maximizers, yeah, that would then be very demanding. But we have a choice. We can either abandon maximization or we can abandon a zero pure time discount rate. And this is where objection three comes in. Because I just think, for many reasons, um, we shouldn't be maximizers. But it's also a very ad hoc, patchy solution. If you, if you believe in maximizing well-being, um, you're utilitarian, then intergenerational justice is demanding, but everything is demanding, right? Uh, global justice is incredibly demanding. Um, so it seems like there's a generic you know, issue about utilitarianism or maximizing doctrines, which is they are demanding, whether over space or time. And so it'd be a very ad hoc, patchy uh, solution to try and deal with it in the intergenerational case by discounting, whereas you don't do that elsewhere. Um, uh, this is a point made by uh, John Rawls in A Theory of Justice, but it kind of seems to get um, ignored. It's also been made, I should say, as I do say, by um, John Broom and Derek Parfit. Um, and I'm just kind of trying to uh, say a similar <coughs> point in, in connection to the Stern Review debates. So for the, for the three reasons I've just given, I think the idea that we can have a, a positive pure time discount rate, um, because otherwise it would be too demanding, is just not a good argument. It's methodologically misconceived because it doesn't look at the whole equation. It misses out, or uh, just assumes a certain principle of justice, which is about maximising. Um, and even as a solution to maximising, it's a very ad hoc one. Uh, there's an interesting kind of just aside, which is Ken Arrow, when he wrote on this, said his reason was based on a, 
a very influential book by Samuel Scheffler called um, The Rejection of Consequentialism. And what Arrow took from this is we, we should discriminate against future people um, but retain the consequentialism that maximising was the whole point of Scheffler's book was to criticise maximising. Um, and I'm with Scheffler. But I haven't actually said why we should have a zero pure time discount rate. And, and I do think I kind of it came through my earlier comments. Um, as a matter of justice, you should screen out morally irrelevant attributes of people. And uh, race is certainly morally arbitrary. Gender is morally arbitrary. Class, ethnicity. I fail to see why temporal location has moral salience. Um, Remember I say I look at it from a rights point of view. So from a, a rights point of view, you look at people's fundamental interests. Um, and there's no space in the argument for thinking, well, fundamental interests ground right, but interests in T plus 2 somehow matter less than those at T0. Um, it's just kind of alien to the whole fundamental framework. There's no space for al allowing time in. It just has no fundamental moral significance. It may correlate with other things that do, and then we should just say those other things are the thing that matter, like uncertainty. But in and of itself, it just shouldn't matter. So um, I think Stern basically is right and his critics are, um, are wrong, uh, but unlike Stern, I don't believe in welfare maximisation. So this means for any mitigation policy, we should not go down the Nordhaus or Lomborg or um, routes of according less status to wellbeing because it's further off in the future. Now, um, I want to move on to the, kind of the second meaty issue, which I think is much harder, uh, which is about growth discounting. Um, so William Nordhaus, amongst others, and I focus on Nordhaus because he, he's just a major expert in the field and he's also um, wonderfully clear. Uh, he says we should mitigate later um, and devote fewer resources to future generations. We should focus on the now, um, because future generations are going to be wealthier. And we can, um, you know, we don't call their well-being any lesser status, maybe, but um, it makes sense to spend more on the needy than on the wealthier. And Stern accepts this, right? If you read the Stern Review or the American Economic Review address that he gave, the Ely address he gave the following year, um, he endorses this. Um, lots of people who, whose pure time discount rate is zero agree with this. Um, in fact, I'm struggling to think of an economist who doesn't agree with this. Um, I find it hard. So I'm going to say two things here. One is um, I don't think this justifies the conclusion we should um, mitigate later on rather than now. I think um, we should mitigate now and soon. Um, but I think there is something uh, right about the idea that those with the more wealth should pay the more. So it's not easy to just brush aside. So I put three arguments on the handout for that I, I mean, this is me being archaeologist. I'm sort of trying to dig into the discussion to see what's doing the work because I think many just think it's, it's kind of obvious that they're going to be wealthier and it's kind of obvious that the wealthy should pay. And um, I don't find either of those obvious. So one, one argument um, you get is a, is a utilitarian one about diminishing marginal utility. And uh, it's just a very simple, familiar argument that uh, if future generations are going to be wealthier, then a, a unit of resource is better spent on the now um, because it'll yield higher utility than on the future. So I'm not a utilitarian, but um, I think 
central problem with this, it just doesn't disaggregate within generations. So let's suppose that they are right, that future generations are going to be wealthier, and we bracket out any concern that climate change might somehow impede that process of economic growth. Um, that's compatible with you know, the next generations um, being fantastically wealthy, but some of them living in truly desperate poverty and suffering those violations of rights that I mentioned earlier. So that's not going to cut any normative ice, the fact that the future generations are wealthier um, when what we're doing is producing a process that sort of foreseeably causes some people not to have the right to life or water or food or health. So um, you know, the, just the premises of that are not congenial. But there's a second argument I think you know, is more promising, and it says, look, it, fairness is about ability to pay. So um, again, let's just grant the assumption for the moment that future generations are going to be wealthier. We say look, um, those who have more um, should pay more. And um, Robert Mendelssohn at Yale and, and William Nordhaus uh, both, I think, uh, sort of try and articulate this intuition. Um, so let's try a fairness argument. Again, I'm, I'm parking the assumptions about growth. You know, I, A, I'm not qualified, and B, I just want to look at the moral reasoning. So one concern some people might have is they don't actually think that the burden should be distributed according to ability to pay. And they might think that the burden of combating climate change should be borne by those who cause the problem. So they might have a, a sort of contribution to the problem principle as opposed to an ability to pay principle. Um, and they might say, if I walked on my way here and dropped some litter, um, I should pick it up um, because I polluted, uh, not the person next to me who has a greater ability to pay in some way. Right? We don't think there. Uh, we think the polluter should pay. So I'm just saying it's not immediately obvious that um, it should be ability to pay. As it happens, and I'm not going to go through all the pros and cons, I do think ability to pay should play a hefty role within it. So, but I'm just drawing attention to the non-obvious um, non nature of, that, of their, their starting assumption. What bothers me more is the argument's incomplete, because it says that those who are wealthier have the obligation to do something about it. But that's going to be incomplete until we know, A, that they can do the job, and B, that they are likely to do the job. Because we have to be concerned not just about fairness to duty bearers, but fairness to victims. So let's assume still that there's going to be economic growth and people will be wealthier. Um, but let's suppose that the wealth is somehow um, unable to deal with climate change. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about why that might be the case in a minute. Or let's suppose they're not disposed to use that wealth to help the, the needy. That might give you pause for triggering a process that will create huge wealth on the one hand and huge human rights deficits on the others. You might say, OK, well, I really think the people with the great wealth should do something about it. Um, but if I were one of those vulnerable jeopardizers, I would think it was a bit reckless and irresponsible for someone else to, to knowingly put me in the line of fire with the thought that someone more affluent could come to my rescue. Um, but my point here is it depends a lot on not just the willingness of the affluent to do something, but their ability. So we can't avoid argument three, which is about cost effectiveness. And I think this is probably where Nordhaus and Lomborg and the great Nobel uh, laureate Thomas Schelling are coming from. Which is, um, I think Lomborg 
sorry, Nordhaus's assumption uh, is that there will be economic growth and um, we can use the wealth generated to adapt. So it's not that it's fair somehow to, uh, that it's not a principle of justice that those with the greatest ability should do it. It's just, that's the best way to do it. Um, let them amass wealth, they'll amass wealth, then they can cope with the problem. And this is explicitly um, Lomborg's uh, <coughs> message in The Skeptical um, Environmentalist and in Cool It. It's about the power of adaptation. Um, so, uh, empirically, I mean, the Stone Review just flatly denies this. It just says that it would be much cheaper to mitigate now um, because the climatic damages are so great and so destructive to development that the assumption I've been allowing all along um, just should be rejected out of court, right? That any idea that they will be wealthier um, with a two or three degree uh, increase in, in temperatures and rising sea levels of, say, 59 centimetres in the next um, 100 years, let alone 12 metre ones if uh, the uh, ice sheets melt. You know, it's just illusory, they would say. Now, I'm, I'm not an economist. So I'm not going to kind of press on this. But uh, if that's right, then that's just the nail in the coffin, right? And I needn't say any more. Um, but uh, I still think it's worth asking, even if, they, if that weren't right, uh, isn't it kind of reckless to the victims um, just to say, well, uh, they will be wealthier and they can do it, so um, we're going to create that, that problem situation. Um, third objection I want to make to this point is uh, I think they're assuming that greater wealth can somehow provide either adaptation or compensation. And both of those seem to me problematic. So uh, most climate scientists I've spoken to about this say uh, that the knowledge of the regional impacts of dangerous climate change is incredibly hard. And uh, the global estimates are um, fraught with uncertainties and risks, and the regional ones are even more so. Uh, and that affects the possibility of adaptation, because if you, you don't know um, where a freak weather event is going to occur or uh, where there might be extreme precipitation or um, where sea levels might rise faster than one place than another, the idea that you can just easily adapt um, is just bogus. Secondly, adaptation is not just a function of money. It's a function of um, government accountability and uh, ability to respond um, to crises. So undemocratic, unaccountable states can have all the money um, they want, but they, they may not be sensitive to crises as they appear on the horizon or emerge. And thirdly, there are some things which you might just think are irreplaceable, that um, you, you know, unless you mitigate, they're going to be lost. Uh, so human life is clearly in that uh, category. But you might also you know, think that um, biodiversity loss has an intrinsic value, and if that goes... Uh, it's not that we can somehow adapt in some way. There's a non-substitutable loss um, uh, to the natural world or to human existence and our will and our place within it. That it's not that you can allow it to happen and then people can adapt to it. You just shouldn't allow it to happen. So this third objection is really about the, uh, the importance of money or lack of importance. That it's not perfectly commensurable with other goods to some extent. And you need to have very rosy assumptions about the efficacy and possibility of adaptation to kind of gung-ho, go ahead with growth and then think we can deal with it via more money. 
So I hope I've given a fair run for the money for these growth discounting arguments for mitigation. Um, and I'm sure you'll tell me if, if I haven't or I've kind of missed out some crucial variant. Um, I think um, my conclusion is that it's very complex growth discounting and there is something I think right about those who having more should pay more. I just don't think it generalises to this case um, because if that means that future people should pay more because um, they are wealthier, I think that's just, a, just an incorrect empirical assumption to, to, to start with. So, um, so I'm not saying I'm totally averse to growth discounting in principle, just in this particular case. Um, there's two interesting questions I just want to raise here, and then I'll move on to the final phase, and then and I'll stop. Which is, um, I've assumed that making those with the greatest ability to pay, assuming they are future people, means that if they pay, um, the action comes later. So it's an interesting question to me whether it would be possible to have mitigation now, but the bill be passed on later. And maybe that's just absurd and impossible, in which case... Um, uh, nothing follows, but if it does follow, there might be a case for mitigating now, but passing on at least some of that burden on to future generations who will be better off than current ones. So my assumption hitherto has been deferring the, sorry, that making future people pay on the basis that they're wealthier means um, deferring the decision. If that's a false assumption, then um, I need to revise some of my claims, but what I would say is we need to mitigate now but um, the ability to pay principle could inform the bill, so to speak. And the second interesting question is, yeah, what's the implications of the work I mentioned earlier by um, uh, Miles Allen and Dave Frame for emissions pathway in the period between now and 2500? So if, if you remember, I said earlier that uh, they say we have a half a trillion left to emit between now and um, 2500, and there are lots of emissions pathways compatible with it. So then there's a question of distributive justice about how we share out that, um, that quota of emissions between now and then. And um, Dave's in the room, so he can correct me, but I think uh, they say it doesn't actually make a lot of difference uh, which pathway you choose from the point of view of triggering um, the dangerous climate change. So there's flexibility for different emissions pathways. So you can actually mitigate later as long as you do enough then, or mitigate earlier but do less later. The, the point is not to allow the trillionth tonne to be emitted. So that's my prompt for the next question. So I've looked wholly at question one, which is what should be the target? Should we discount at all, and if so, why? Now I want to look at how do you distribute that emissions budget? And I'm going to say a lot less about it. I just have one point I want to get across, really. Um, so some people do this equal per capita approach, and they, they say... Um, everyone is entitled to an equal amount of greenhouse gas emissions. So you'd look at the half trillion, and then you'd look at the number of people, and you'd divide it. Um, now, I'm not generally in favour of the equal per capita approach for uh, various reasons, including its just insensitivity to people's needs. So I think those with greater need are entitled to more. Um, I also don't know how you operationalise this here, because you don't know how many people there are going to be between now and 2,500, so I don't know what the N would be by which you would divide it. Um, and I'm more sympathetic to those who say, well, we should prioritise core needs for emissions. That's where emissions rights should go. Um, Eco-equity and Paul Baer uh, sort of argue this, and uh, I think I agree quite a lot with their, their approach. 
But the, the key point I wanted to get across is this. I, I think um, the question I posed is not a helpful one, because I posed it as what is a, a fair principle for greenhouse gas budget? Um, and I think it's wrong to isolate that good on its own, because greenhouse gas emissions matter because of the benefits they yield. So uh, they matter because people want to cook and heat and have transportation and construction. Um, so they matter because of the interests they serve. And it happens to be that they are fantastically cheap, although now with a massive externality, way of servicing these needs. But I think it's a mistake to focus on this particular means to that end rather than that end. So that's what I mean by the substitutability claim. Um, if we try to share emissions between now and 2500 on an equal per capita or any other basis, I'm sure we'd all get a, a pifflingly, you know, trifling amount. Um, we need to change the question and look at what is a fair distribution of resources to serve those needs. So here are three ways of chipping away at that idea. One is energy efficiency. You know, suppose I was given a choice of two houses. One has loft insulation and, and is terrifically insulated. Um, and the other one is um, leaks heat out all the time. Um, but I'm given greater emissions for the second house and less for the first. I don't care right, that, um, that I would have an inequality in emissions allocations. It's not, I don't care about equality there. I, I, I don't care about the emissions. I just want a heated house. So um, it seems that you know, energy efficiency initiatives are going to be crucial because they will change the subject from how many emissions we have to what goods can we enjoy. Um, so I mentioned the King report on transportation because uh, there was a report by, I've forgotten her first name, but the King Review of Low Carbon Cars set up by the UK Treasury said that there's technology that can reduce CO2 emissions per car by 30% on a like-for-like -like basis that's close to market that could be standard within five to 10 years. So I think the possibility of things like that, I mean, the, the question is not how do we share emissions, it's um, uh, how do we design energy efficient housing, transportation, um, buildings in general to meet the needs. The possibility of alternative energy sources is just another way of making the, the same point. Um, so I think it's currently the case that um, in the EU, 5% of um, fuel in cars must be made up of biofuels or biodiesel. Uh, and it can be done so without making any appreciable effect. It seems bizarre then to think, no, uh, I want my emissions, right? Uh, I don't, I just want to drive a car. Uh, so uh, the possibility of alternative energy sources, um, again, changes the question. Now, of course, they're not perfect substitutes, right? Because some of them, like, uh, let's say, um, wind, will be variable in supply. Some of them, like biofuels, have unattractive externalities often and food security. Uh, some of them, like nuclear, have waste and so on. So I'm not saying, oh, it's terrifically easy, but I'm just saying it's because of possibilities like these that we should develop those and then change the question. And agricultural practices is just the same. I'm thinking of nitrous oxide in fertilizer and methane in livestock. Um, <clears throat> farmers don't care about having the greenhouse gas allocations, they just care about fertilising their land. So the message here is we, we should not really have a principle of distributive justice for greenhouse gas emissions. We should have a principle of justice for meeting core needs or capabilities. 
Okay, so let me wrap up then. Um, what I've tried to do uh, is um, four things. One is to say, look, there, there's three questions of intergener intergenerational justice that we face. Um, one to do with the specification of the target, one to do with the greenhouse gas budget, and um, one to do with other policy instruments. And then secondly, I've argued that we should have a zero uh, pure time discount rate. So someone in four centuries' time has the same moral standing as someone now. We shouldn't penalise them for their place in time. That thirdly, uh, growth discounting, um, whatever force it might have in some contexts, uh, doesn't provide any reason for delaying mitigation. Um, and uh, fourthly, the last point I made, that when I, I said there's a principle of justice for greenhouse gas distribution, um, actually there isn't. There's a, it's located within a bigger question about access to energy or agriculture or housing um, or transportation. But we shouldn't focus on the means, but rather the end. Okay, thanks very much.